All right, so we just sang, Jesus is worthy, God is worthy. And that's so true. I mean, there's nothing bigger than that. But what I want to talk to this morning and what's been laid on my heart over the last couple of weeks when I was actually thinking about coming here is, is he worthy of our obedience as well? You know, we say he's worthy, right? But sometimes we can see that as something kind of distant and only directed towards him. But that has a direct correlation to me and my walk. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. But before, let's, let's pray. And let's turn this over to him. And let's uh, get into the word. We do thank you, our God and Father, that you became a man. You sent your son to become a man to dwell among us to teach us how to walk, teach us how to be, and to teach us what is right. And you prove that you are worthy of our obedience through your obedience and what you are able and willing to suffer so that we could be close and know you. Lord, help us never to be commonplace with that reality. Uh, remind us, Lord, remind us when we see the world and we're distracted to know that you are worthy of our obedience as well. Uh, give us the grace, Lord, not to be sucked in by the glitz and the glamour of this world. Help us to be truly thankful people by the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So, is following Jesus really worth it? Uh, we've been gone 25 years. We left September 25 years ago. Uh, and we were in Ecuador, and we've been in there for, for that long. One of the things that's happened since then, and one of the things that really enthralls me, uh, Tesla. You know, you read the stories. Never, you know, I never, I never, there's no Teslas in Ecuador. You read the stories, and you read the articles, and you see about technology and you know you can stand on the curb and summon your car from the parking lot to come and pick you up that's pretty cool and you can like be driving and i maybe this is commonplace for all y'all but not for me let go and just let it do itself you know and it'll pass you know that would freak me out i think the first couple times but but it can do it safely, and frankly, it can do it even safer than a human because it has more sensors than a human can tell, and, and it, can, it can do it all better. And, you know, you're thinking about that, and you're like, well, that is really, really cool. I, I would love to have that. And that's just a small thing. That's one of the things that I, I, I have to I, I wrestle with because I think that's cool, but it distracts me. It distracts me. It's not necessarily bad, but it distracts me. And the question is, is that worthy of my time? To dwell on that, to, to think about that, to, to let that be what preoccupies my mind. And so the question that we come to, and what I really want to talk about this morning, and we're going to look at two different passages, is how do we keep our commitment to God fresh and refreshingly worth it in our own hearts and in our own actions. How, how do we keep it fresh? How do we keep it real on a consistent basis? When we are being distracted by the world, and let's be serious, the world is distracting, 
Absolutely. Is the world, the world is attractive? Absolutely. The world invents itself on being attractive, but it's hollow. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't take our time. So how do we keep what's important important? How do we do that? So there's two passages we're going to talk about. The first one is in Hebrews. So if we look to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to focus on verse 3, but I want to read verses 1 through 3 to get the context. So Hebrews chapter 12, keeping what is important, important. First things first, being really thankful, right? We're Thanksgiving. I love, you. side note, love Thanksgiving. Why? It's so hard to pervert. They can pervert Christmas, right? Ho, 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 and all that stupid stuff. They can pervert even Easter with the bunny. It's really hard to pervert being thankful. And I love that. That's one of the, the great holidays of this country. So, all right, back to Hebrews. Side note. Sorry about the heat. side note. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. We'll look at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll focus on 3. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside two things. First, every weight. And second, the sin which clings so closely. You see the, the, the process there? You've got to analyze, see what it is, and make a decision. Lay aside. He starts off with every weight, and then he talks about the sin. Okay? So there's things that aren't necessarily sin that can still be a hindrance. Lay those aside. Two things to lay aside. We can't focus on that. We could focus on that for years. And then we're supposed to put on. So take off and put on, right? Things we're supposed to do. And he says run. He continues on in verse 1. And let us run. That's the first thing. And the second thing is run with endurance the race set before us. So run with endurance the race set before us. I was meditating on this verse, and, and it was comforting to me. You know, he doesn't say the race set before everybody. There is a race that he set before me that I need to run. That means everything in that race, every obstacle in that race, everything that's going to be affecting me in that race was set out before him for me to run. He knew that I could do it. That's why he did it. He knew that I needed to do it, and that's why he set it out in front, in front of me. So I need to run that race. So that's just verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. This is where our focus needs to be. It says, looking to Jesus, and talks about him, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne God. So what we, we focus on him while we run this race, while we, while we take off that which weighs us, while we set aside that which is sinful, while we focus on our race and what he has set before us, we look to him. And then he comes down to verse 3. And he says, Paul, and not Paul, the author to Hebrews, you can argue all day who it really is. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, running the race as we should. 
living life as we should, being who we really should be in reaction to what? Verse 3 says, consider him. But don't just consider him. Consider him who endured it's the hostility. Contradiction, I think, is the way the King James puts it. Those two words are very similar in their, in their approach. The idea is he endured a heap load of things. Consider that. And the result is that we won't grow weary or faint-hearted. Why does the author to Hebrews talk about that? Because we are really prone to growing faint and growing uh, weary in our walk. You know, Why? the world distracts us, right? I don't have that Tesla. I'll never have that Tesla. But it's like every now and then, wouldn't it be nice? And it's distracting. How do we refocus? How do we keep ourselves focused? Consider him who endured such hostility, such contradiction. That is what is going to keep us from becoming distracted. When we consider him. And we consider him not just as a person. We, we consider a sense, in essence, the hostility that he endured. Why? Why did he endure that hostility? What was that hostility that he endured? And we also consider the manner in which that hostility was set against him. And the result then will be that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we do that? Well, let's, it's interesting because if you continue on through chapter 12 of, of Hebrews, uh, the author doesn't tell us how to do that. He goes on to talk about the discipline of the Lord and how that's something that we should appreciate. But there's plenty of other places that do talk about the hostility that he went through that we should meditate on so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. We need to keep our walk and actions where they need to be. And so in order to do that, let's focus on what he went through. Let's consider him. Consider what he did. Consider how he went through what he went through so that we will not allow our hearts to say, you know what, it's not important to live for him, because that's what we naturally do. We become commonplace. Even good stuff can become common, and it shouldn't. So we need to consider him. And so for that, I, I want to go to our second passage of this morning, and that is where we're going to focus. And this is in, in the, the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14 And we're going to just see the verses 43 to 52, which is basically that the story of his betrayal and his arrest. Another passage that was, when I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and then it, I, this, 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 this passage came alive. So he, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to see 43 to 52, is that, that passage. All right, when we, when we talk about the context, then, of the Gospels, uh, we, we understand, how many Gospels are there? There's one person alive here, okay, all right. There's four Gospels. Each Gospel presents Jesus Christ in a different light. 
not that they're contradictory in any sense, but because they're looking from a different perspective, they pronounce Jesus as a different thing. So the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, right? Or the Messiah, the, 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 the one who came to fulfill the promises to, to the Jews, right? That's the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as a servant. The Gospel of Luke presents him as the Son of Man, and the Gospel of John as the Son of God. You know, the, 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 those, those, those are the, the main concepts, the main focuses when we get through. So when we're talking about the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're presenting Jesus Christ as the one who came to serve. Okay, so we'll keep that in mind as, as we read our passage. Okay, so Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. It says, And immediately while we, he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Verse 45. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, How have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. Verses 51 and 52, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So we're just going to contemplate this. Now, in, in lieu of what we saw in Hebrews 12, verse 3, remember the contradiction. Remember what he went through, and by doing that, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, so that's where we're going to begin. So we've got three things that we're going to look at. First, we see the betrayal planned. Then we see the betrayal realized. And then the, re retail, the result of the re betrayal in the last two, three verses. So the plan, uh, going back to verse 43. And immediately, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, now the betrayer had said, had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. So, so what's going on here? What's the scene? We've heard it. We've seen it. We need to refresh our minds. First, we've got Judas. Judas, the one who had been with Jesus when he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. He, he, he picked up the breadcrumbs along with the other 11. Judas, the one who was with Jesus when they were in the boat and they were sinking and they were scared and Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. And Judas, who was there when all the teaching took place. Judas, who was there when all the miracles took place. Judas was there. But what was he there for? Remember 
what contradiction he suffered so that our hearts will not grow weary. He was there. And nobody knew it but Jesus. And Jesus was clear. And Judas was there. The second group of people that are there is the crowd. Mark just talks about the crowd in essence, but it talks about a crowd that was sent from the high priests. And we've got then a, a group of people that probably had to do with the security force at the temple, plus the people who worked for the high priest, all there. And it says they were with swords and with clubs. Malintent. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't there for a picnic. They weren't there for good reasons. They weren't there to be kind. They weren't there to be gentle. There was the crowd. And the third group of people who are present then, and it doesn't mention this directly in, in Mark. I just about talked to you in Spanish, sorry. En lo que dice Marcos. Okay, just so I'll get that out of the way and I don't have to say it anymore. What Mark tells us, it's the Roman soldiers. The reason why the Roman soldiers would have been involved in that is because they didn't want it to turn into a riot. You know, kind of just, all right, all right. But Roman soldiers weren't known for being nice. Uh, Roman soldiers weren't, weren't known for, for imparting right, uh, uh, a calmness in their presence. They were there to get the job done, and they didn't care how they got it done. And generally, that was brutal. So that's who's there. And what we also I need to bring out in, in this whole story, and that's because we live in a day and age that we question God's word, is that this wasn't an accident. Do we realize that? When this came about, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't that there was like, you know, wrong place, wrong time. No, this was firmly planted before the foundation of the world. This was going to happen. This was fulfillment of what had to happen according to God's will. The second thing, you know, this wasn't something that was forced on Jesus. Sometimes we, we want, I, I would not hear at Branford, right, because... We understand God's scripture, but there's people who, who consider themselves to, to know stuff about the Bible, and they say, Jesus was just a, a, a faithful martyr for a cause, and that's not the case. He's much more than that. He's much bigger than that. He, he wasn't forced to this. It wasn't an uncontrolled accident or, or, or a group of events that came together, and it's like he got caught up in it. This was on purpose. Uh, this, he went to the cross on purpose. He went to the cross to pay for our salvation. He knew what was happening. He knew how it was going to happen. That doesn't make it any less terrible. But I really wanted to draw out one thing when I was studying this, is the irony of what was going on. Remember when we talked about the different Gospels? The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the servant, right? Do you know what the key word of the Gospel of Mark is? It's a little world immediately. One of the key words is immediately. And it talks about how Jesus was actively engaged in helping and being good to people. Immediately he went and healed the son, the, 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 the daughter of, of, the, of the, 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 the man in, in Capernaum. And immediately he went and healed the mother-in-law of Peter, and immediately, if you go through, I think the, 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 the word is mentioned like over, over 17 or 18 times in reference just to Jesus and his actions. Immediately, 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 immediately. 
But did you catch how that plays into the passage that we just saw? The second word of verse 43. Did you see that? It says, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas came. And that same, ver that same word in the original also appears in verse 45 when it talks about, um, when it talks about Judas approaching Jesus to kiss him. What, what I want to understand and what I want to bring out on that is, do you see the contradiction there? How he was immediately ready to help and to serve and to, and to be a blessing and in the same way, they were immediately ready to do away with him. Don't forget the irony of what's going on here. He did good. And he tried, and they, in the same way, tried to do him harm. In the same way that he tried to serve, with that same eagerness, they tried to do away with him. Hebrews 12, 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary. What do we learn from this? First, think. Are you thinking about giving up? Are you thinking and saying, maybe this Christian walk isn't really worth it? Are you, are you maybe allowing the world to say, you know what, just tone it down a bit? That's okay for you. Say, just, just, just don't let everybody else have to deal with it. Are you allowing those thoughts to go through your head that maybe it's not worth being totally committed to Christ? Remember this. Remember this. He was willing to go through incredible hostility. He was willing to go through and be treated in a way that was directly and intentionally harmful towards himself to buy your salvation. Don't take that lightly. And when we understand that in the beginning, it allows us to not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, we're special. We're loved. We're precious. Frankly, he would rather go through that level of hostility than live for eternity without us. He wants to have a relationship with us. Don't let that become commonplace. He was willing to be maliciously and callously treated for no good reason so that we could be free. Don't let that become commonplace. Now in verses 45 through 49, we see how, how the, going back to, staying in Mark, not going back to, we, we see how the, the, the betrayal was realized. Let's look for verse 45 and verse 46. It, this brings out Judas's kiss. It's become something commonplace even in our society today. Referred to Judas's kiss and how that is something so contrary. Uh, verse 45 says, And when he came, this is the betrayer, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, which, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. So let's talk a little bit about this event. Judas's kiss. This despicable and, dis and ultimately dishonorable sign of a kiss. So do, do you know it wasn't proper for the disciple to kiss the rabbi? The proper thing was for the rabbi to kiss the disciple. Did you know that? 
So Judas twists it. And on top of everything else, he uses a sign of affection, which is truly an act of betrayal. Now, nobody probably understood what was going on except for the people he, Judas, Judas has told. And Jesus, obviously, the other disciples were just kind of like, well, that's kind of weird. That's probably the extent of what they thought till later, and they understood. But the idea being is he used something that was twisted, something that should have been a sign of affection in order to betray. That's got to be impactful. And then after, if you, if you notice, what does he call him? He calls him rabbi. That means master. It means teacher. What was he doing in the moment that he was uttering those words? He was betraying. He wasn't declaring him his master. He wasn't submitting to him as his teacher. He was saying, this is whatever anything buts. The point is, and we need to understand that we can expect mistreatment from an enemy. We can expect that. We can expect that we will be mistreated from somebody we don't know or from somebody we know casually. We don't expect that from a friend. Frankly, we shouldn't, we shouldn't expect that from a friend. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember, he was willing to be hurt and betrayed by someone he called a friend to prove his love to us. Never minimize how much it hurt him for one of his own to be his betrayer. Never minimize that. And when we understand that he was willing to go to that depth that needs to reaffirm in us how we need to live faithfully for him. There's a second thing that happens during that time period when he was arrested, and that has to do with the, the servant's ear. Verse 47 through 49. Follow with me. It says, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as it against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So it talks about this incident, and we, and we, we need to be uh, aware of this by reading through the other um, Gospels as well. I think John gives a, a more clear appreciation uh, specifically in John 18, we find that the person who does the, the, the slicing is Peter. And the person who is the slicee is Malchus, who is one of the high priest's servants. Now, what was Peter's intent? It never tells us. Um, three good options, as far as I can tell. First is maybe he just had bad aim, right? Maybe he was going for his neck and he missed. Could be. The second, which is interesting that I was reading about, it says maybe he was actually aiming for the ear. Maybe he just wanted to cut off his ear because remember, who was he? He was the servant's, um, the high priest's servant. Now, the minute that somebody lost an ear, 
or uh, any sort of part of their body, they were not complete, they could no longer serve in the temple. So maybe he was trying to disqualify him from serving in the temple under his boss. You know, maybe that's what he was trying to do. So maybe he had really good aim. So either he had really bad aim or maybe really good aim. Or, or perhaps, perhaps even as some people have said, maybe this was Peter's way of trying to make Jesus, to force Jesus' hand to become in power, defend himself, and prove himself in power to be the Messiah. Maybe, maybe he was trying to do that. In the end, we really don't know. What we do know is that Jesus saved him. Jesus saved Peter's skin. Because John talks about Jesus coming and healing the guy's ear. Right? So no harm, no foul. Right? And so the guy had nothing to complain about. And, and Peter, in essence, was saved. Because if not, he would have had to suffer. So in that whole story, as we see here, we see how, how Jesus saved other people and was other-minded in the midst of what was happening directed towards him. And then he responds in verses 48 to 49. He uses logic. He goes, hey, hey guys, listen, wait, wait one second. How many days have I been teaching in the temple? For over a week, right? How come you didn't do anything then? What's the big deal? Why are you doing it now? Why are you doing it at night? Why with this group? And then he ends that whole discussion by saying, but let the word of God be fulfilled. Let the prophecies be fulfilled. Now he gives us an example here of how we need to go through when we are being maligned and mistreated. And he talks about that, and that's something that needs to encourage us as well. It says, he he t says, listen, this is how it's like. But first and foremost, I submit myself to the will of God. And when we're going through those similar situations, we need to understand that as well. We need to understand what's going on, make it clear what's going on. But it doesn't mean that we need to pull on AK-47 and clean house. We need to be able to submit to what God's will is, even above our own convenience and above our own comfort. So going back to where we began in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's understand that our outward actions, Judas's outward actions, all appeared to be legitimate. But Jesus knew. How did that hurt his heart? When he saw the actions of Judas and of the crowd, he understood their intention. It was completely different to what they were putting on the outside, and he still submitted to it. Why did he do that? It's because he loved us. He loves us. So, consider that when we are growing faint-hearted. Consider that he loves us enough to let someone close to him who called him, right, rabbi, teacher, master, Consider that he was willing to allow that to happen so that we do not grow heart, grow, grow re weary. And the last part we find here in verses 50 to 52, uh, it says, And they all left him 
and fled. That's kind of like the story here. That's kind of like the central aspect. And verse 41 in specific speaks of one person. We really don't even know who it is. It says, A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's kind of like a reference, right? Everybody was running. It was just a, a free-for-all, save-yourself kind of a situation. And what struck me about these verses is he did this alone. He was willing to go through what we had to go through alone. It says everyone left him in verse 50. They all left him and fled. We talk about the physical pain that Jesus Christ went through going through the cross. And that's, that's important. And we don't need to minimize what a Roman cross does. But let's not forget the emotional pain that he went through. I ask you, right, when you're going through a troubled time, is it not easier if you've got someone who loves you next to you? He chose to go alone. He was willing to suffer alone. Why? Why alone? Why, why not just someone? Why not, why not just one Peter? I mean, come on. He had the mouth. He talked the talk, but he ran like a chicken. Why, why not just one person to stand with him? Three reasons. Maybe there's more. First, he wanted to protect his disciples. He actually speaks to that in some of the other Gospels. I'm the one you're seeking. Let them go. He didn't want them to have to suffer. They had another job. Their job was going to build up the church. Let them go. He had to suffer, and so he suffered alone to protect the disciples. The disciples. Second reason. He was the, uh, the second reason why he suffered alone was because he was the only one who could assume what was just about to happen. See, he, he couldn't share the burden of our sins with somebody else. He had to do that alone. He was the only one who could carry the burden of sin for humankind. The only one who was able to take upon himself the, the, the punishment that the Father demands Holy and righteous demands sober over himself so that we could have salvation. Nobody else could share in that. Nobody else could participate in that. He alone had to satisfy the holy demands that the, uh, that of a holy God. And frankly, he did. So he was alone for that. But there's a third reason why he was alone. And this is the part that when I was meditating on this and, and, and reading about this that really struck me. You know why he suffered alone? So that I will never have to be alone again. Right? Why was he alone? So that he can stand beside me forever and I can be with him forever. The reason why he suffered alone and the reason why he suffered what he suffered was so that I will never be alone. So he suffered alone. He chose to be alone in his sufferings. Hebrews 
says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, what are we called to do? Brothers and sisters, consider him. Consider what he did. Consider how he did what he did. Why? Because we are prone to become weak. We are easily distracted. We are quick to not be committed. But when we consider him, when we consider what he did, and we consider how he did what he did for us, let that just once again overwhelm us with how big his grace is so that I act as I should, so that I live as I should, so that I, I, I fulfill his call in my life, not, not as, as, as a secondary thing, but as the primary thing and importance of my life. Because if we don't do that, if we, brothers and sisters, we, we just went through the Lord's table. That's when we do this. Don't let it become commonplace. Don't let it become something that we just tack on. Let it be important. We need this to be important because that's what keeps our walk fresh. That's what keeps our walk focused. So consider him. Don't forget it. And allow him and what he has done and how he did it be something that refreshes our hearts to new and, in, and more committed service to him. Let's stand tall. Let's not be distracted. Let's not be distressed. Let's resist temptation and sin. Let's not go soft. Let's live fully committed to what he wants us to be and what he chooses, our path, that path which he has called us to run the race on, let us be committed and fully committed to run that race for his glory. So let's, let's pray. So our Father, you, you know, we are overwhelmed to think that you would put your son in such a place where he would suffer such amazing contradiction from the creation that he made, that he would suffer in such a way that is, in our mind, almost incomprehensible and, and twisted and so, and in and, and, and such a, a negative way. He was willing to go through that to prove how much he loved us. Father, let, let that reality never get stale in our minds or hearts. He loved us so much that he was willing to suffer that to prove it. And Lord, when we, when we contemplate that, when that comes and it really attacks our mind and our hearts, Lord, let that react in us as living in a sanctified way on this earth, as not giving up, as not becoming faint-hearted is not, not being bold for you and not acting as we know we must, 
Lord, when the distractions come, naming them as such and setting them aside, when the sin that entangles, Lord, when that becomes part of our lives, Lord, to repent and to leave them, Lord, to focus on you. Lord, what we need in this world is first and foremost people committed and focused in their lives and in their personal walk with you and then going out and reaching the world and showing that difference to the world. Help us to be those people. Help us to understand the importance of knowing who you are and what you did so that we live correct lives for you. Lord, we commit ourselves once again to, to living a life and walking a walk and letting our words correspond to what that truth is of who we are in you. May we do that, Lord. May, may your people here in Branford live that kind of a life so that they can be a light to this area. We pray this, Lord knowing that you are going to convince our hearts and then give us the opportunity to serve. May we take those opportunities. May we do them for your glory, for your honor, because you're worth it. We thank you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.